opinions and statements expressed in the following program do not necessarily reflect those of WWDB, its staff, or management. Good morning, this is Greg Roman on WWDB 860 AM Middle East Forum Radio with the top of the morning hour program with all of the Middle East content that you could ever ask for. Today, we have an exciting program with Ambassador Robert Pearson returning to our broadcast, speaking about the latest in U.S.-Turkey relations and also the ebb and flow of what's going on with Syria, Russia, Libya, and all of the countries that are involved in the eastern Mediterranean Turkey shoot, seeing what we have going on with that problem. But first, a little bit of news. First, as it relates to Syria, a day after Russia ramped up to air attacks in Syria, President Recep Tayyip Erdogan highlighted Turkey's recent success in turning the tide of the Libyan civil war in favor of the Islamist-oriented government of national accord against the Moscow-backed Libyan National Army, and then threatened Ankara will not permit Idlib to become a conflict zone again, Idlib being the area of Russia, excuse me, Idlib being the area of Syria that is currently the last redoubt of any Syrian rebel control. Nine years after the civil war started, this is the last area of the country that still has a little bit of um, uh, a rebel force not under the control of the Assad regime. When Russia backed the Assad regime forces last February and ignored a 7, 7, September 2018 Turkish-Russian demilitarization deal intended to keep the Syrian army out of Idlib, the Turkish military launched an operation that reversed some of the government's advances that was up until Russia agreed to a new ceasefire agreement on March 5th. Last week, Turkey again warned the rebel groups that it patronizes in Idlib of the potential of a Syrian-Russian offensive targeting that last area of rebel control. And also moving on to Turkey, after eight years of discussions, and this is something that I still don't understand why Europe is giving the Turks the ability to enter into the Euro market, but after eight years of discussions, Turkey's Treasury and Finance Ministries announced Tuesday on reaching an agreement to join Euroclear, one of two principal security clearinghouses in the Eurozone, by having Turkey join the Brussels-based securities depository, which at the end of 2019 held for its clients 31.4 trillion, trillion with a T, euros, and last year conducted 239 million netted transactions equivalent to 837 trillion euros by value, Turkish bonds will be more accessible to foreign investors. Partially spooked by Ankara temporarily last month banning three international banks from conducting foreign currency trades involving Lira to be able to stop its depreciation and the downward spiral of Turkish inflation, non-resident holdings of local government bonds dropped to over $7.1 billion at the end of May from $14 billion at the end of 2019. And this is something that I just cannot fathom. And we'll ask the ambassador about this. When we see Turkey on the road to the worst recession in the country's modern history, and at the same time, when it's escalating its tyranny and its crackdown on those who are anathema or those who are in the opposition to President Erdogan, their government blames, without any evidence, a movement which was only trying to be able to exert its own rights. And while it still is involved in the arrest of journalists, in the arrest of opposition figures, academics, 
doctors, teachers, military personnel, police officers, prosecutors, judges. It's now being given an economic lifeline by the European Union. Something I just don't understand. How on one hand, the Europeans claim to stand for human rights, being a vanguard for democracy, for openness, for transparency, for individual freedoms. And now they've welcomed one of the worst attractors of those different benefits for humanity into their economic sphere. In Libya, despite European Union foreign policy and the foreign ministers of France, Germany, and Italy signing a joint statement calling for a, peace, a ceasefire, again, President Erdogan of Turkey seconded the Interior Ministry's talks that only when the Islamists control the entire northern Libyan coast will there be room for a potential ceasefire. The actual ceasefire right now is trying to be brokered in Libya by President al-Sisi of Egypt, someone who has a little bit more stake being neighbors with Libya. But again, Erdogan is trying to stick his fingers into the pie. Now, moving over to another country, Iran. Congressional Republicans will introduce legislation Wednesday that, according to Representative Mike Johnson, a Republican from Louisiana, will impose the toughest sanctions that have ever been proposed by Congress on Iran. This is especially relevant considering the United Nations' ban on the sale of weapons to Iran is about to expire, forcing the United States to step in to pick up the slack. If the UN Security Council doesn't back into it, but in my opinion, China and Russia will veto any potential resolution allowing for a continuance of that weapons ban. The legislation, Johnson commented, would require the president to get permission from the House and Senate to issue Iran sanctions waivers, the most important being those extending to Iraq to purchase Iranian electricity. It would also impose sanctions on every Iraqi militia that participated in the New Year's Eve attack on the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad. The legislation sponsors also want to cut all U.S. aid to Lebanon, which they argue empowers Iran, with Russia set to veto a U.S. request for the extension of 13 years of arms and their embargoes on Iran in October, the legislation would sanction companies selling arms to Iran, banks facilitating their sale, and those transporting the weapons. Additional sanctions would be imposed on the supreme leader of Iran, Ali Khamenei, his assets, and various sectors of the Iranian economy. Due to a lack of democratic support, it's potentially that the Trump administration's commitment to having these sanctions go forward may not continue and may actually flounder. Last in our news, before we get to our first guest, in Israel, the High Court of Justice, their equivalent of the Supreme Court, in an 8-1 to decision Tuesday struck down a 2017 law that would have voided Palestinians' titled land where around 4,000 Jewish homes are located, as long as those homes were either built in good faith or had government support. With the Palestinian owners of the land receiving 125% financial compensation for the value of their property. The government never applied the law, and Attorney General Avichai Mandelblit refused to defend it before the High Court. As it relates to the Palestinian reaction to this, and also the deal of the century, that's Trump's peace plan for the region, the Palestinian Authority Prime Minister Mohammed Shtaya announced Tuesday that if Israel annexes the Israeli villages and towns on July 1st, as Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has vowed, the Palestinian Authority will declare a Palestinian state for probably, I don't know, the eighth or ninth time in the last 10 years and will declare a uh, borders being along the 1949 armistice lines and request that the international community recognize it and impose sanctions on Israel. In addition to the Palestinian rejecting of the Trump peace plan, 
It also has rejected the Emirates, the United Arab Emirates recently, with an Etihad Airlines plane landing in Israel Tuesday night to deliver COVID-19 medical aid to the Palestinians. This is the second direct commercial flight from, direct commercial flight from the UAE to Israel and the first decorated with an Etihad logo and UAE flag, Etihad being the national airline of the Emirates. The PA rejected the aid from the last flight, claiming that the UAE did not coordinate with them using Ben-Gurion Airport and normalizing relations between the UAE and Israel. A Palestinian Authority official said that Tuesday's UAE flight was similarly not coordinated with Ramallah, suggesting that the PA will refuse the aid as well. After these messages, Ambassador Robert Peter Pearson. The Israel Victory Project steers U.S. policy toward backing an Israel victory over the Palestinians to resolve the Arab-Israeli conflict. Decades of what insiders call peace processing have left matters worse than where they started. The time has come for a new approach, a complete rethinking of the problem that draws on Israel's earlier and successful strategy of deterrence. Stop pressuring Jerusalem to compromise and make painful concessions. Instead, support Israeli victory, convincing Palestinians and others that the Jewish state will endure. Read more at meforum.org. This is a public service announcement test from TakeMeFishing.org to determine if you need a fishing license and boat registration before heading out on the water. Let's begin. Are you a bear? Do you have a beak? Does your name rhyme with old beagle? Do you dart in front of cars? Here's a tough one. Do you have plumage? Do you rub your body against things to mark them? Do you have webbed feet? No, I mean like a... Were you hatched? Do you have fur? I'm not talking back here. Does your boat fly south for the winter with the other boats? Regardless of how you answer, you need to be licensed and registered because it helps local conservation efforts protect the very natural resources you enjoy boating and fishing in for generations to come. Do your part at TakeMeFishing.org. Welcome back to Millie's Forum Radio here on WWDB 860 AM. Now, we've still been broadcasting during the time of Corona using Skype and other means to be able to access the board in the studio. But I just wanted to take a second to thank our board engineer, our coordinators in the WWDB offices, Sam, Laura, Jason, for all their support for everything that they've been doing, helping us stay on air and also continue to have clear broadcast and reliable programming. Without further ado, our first guest this morning is Robert Pearson former ambassador from the United States and a current non-resident scholar at the Middle East Institute. His focus is on Turkey, especially with an emphasis on U.S.-Turkey relations and other areas of interest regarding Turkey's relations with the EU, Russia, the Middle East, and Central and East Asia. This is his second time on the program. Uh, now, I believe we also uh, should mention that he was the U.S. ambassador to Turkey from 2000 to 2003 and was Director General of the U.S. Foreign Service from 2003 to 2006. Ambassador Pearson, welcome back. Thank you very much. Glad to be with you. What is Erdogan doing this week? That's the question that I'm always asking myself on Wednesdays in the middle of the week because I'm not sure what segment of our program we're going to be talking about his different involvements in Russia, in Syria, in Libya, in Malta, in Cyprus, in the Eastern Mediterranean. If you can just give us a concise, you know, two or three minute overview, what has the president of Turkey been putting his fingers into which pies in the last few weeks? 
Well, Turkey has, uh, and he has, imperial ambitions, and all that you're seeing is a manifestation of that. In Libya, the government of national accord in Tripoli is now driving east along fields that have been out of their control for years, and uh, that is a dramatic new change in Libya. Uh, in uh, the in in Syria, of course, the Turks are hanging on to territory that uh, is in northwestern Syria, but they cannot have um, they don't have the power to actually defeat Assad's forces, and they can't really leave. So, in general, Turkey has um, ambitions, but it hasn't been very successful. And Mr. Erdogan, in recent weeks and months, has tried a high-stakes gamble in Libya to uh, increase Turkish prestige and at the same time lay claim to a great deal of the Eastern Mediterranean uh, economic resources that Greece and Israel and uh, Cyprus and Egypt also claim. So he is aggressively working politically and militarily to try to increase the power and influence of Turkey in the global game. Now, you've written recently that President Erdogan is using nationalism as a band-aid to quell economic discontent at home. Is his intervention in Libya and trying to start fires in other areas of the eastern Mediterranean uh, a, a popular policy in Turkey? Uh, yes and no. It's popular in the sense that the Turks are nationalists and now, and they are very proud of the prestige of their country and its power uh, outside its borders. But... They are tired, a great number of Turks, of the wars, uh, the risk in Libya, the risk in uh, Syria, uh, campaign against the Kurds, uh, and that costs money. And if you are involved in a war, you have to win or you lose uh, national prestige. So uh, I would say it's a mixed bag, frankly, and four Turks are skeptical than there were before, but there's still a lot of support for a kind of grand Turkey, a new Turkey, as Erdogan calls it, playing a big role in the Middle East and in the world. Now, as you know, the Turkish-backed government of national court in Libya has, to my surprise, actually, made major gains against their rival, the Libyan National Army, under Khalid al-Haftar. Now, this is sort of puzzling to someone like me and, and many other outside observers because the LNA has a more powerful roster of backers, Russia, Egypt, the UAE, now against Turkey and Qatar. Uh, how has Turkey pulled this off? Well, it's very interesting. Uh, the Turks uh, sent in, I think, uh, December or January, a large number of soldiers. They're actually Syrian mercenaries that the Turks, through donors, paid to go there. And the Turks are very good at drone technology. And so Haftar was uh, pushing to capture Tripoli in an offensive he announced in April, but he really didn't have the capability to do that. He went too far. And the Turks, by helping the uh, government of National Accord strike back, has captured an air base, now another important city, and they have essentially demolished Haftar's attempts to um, gain national power by conquering the government in Tripoli. Do you expect these gains to last? Well, this is the game. Uh, if the GNA goes too far east, it will directly threaten the oil fields in eastern Libya, and that will certainly draw a 
reaction from the backers of General Haftar, including the Russians. So you have a game in Libya in which at one level it's a great power game, uh, Turkey, Russia, Europe, the United States, and at another level it's an ideological game, game because Egypt, UAE back the opposition to the Muslim Brotherhood and Qatar, a strong ally of the government in Tripoli, and Turkey are proponents of the Muslim Brotherhood theology. So it's a, it's a Middle Eastern conflict over ideology at one level and a great power conflict over resources uh, at another. Now, this is the second time that Turkey is squaring off either directly or indirectly against a Russian-backed opponent. Is this a you know, forecast for what's inevitably going to happen in Lebanon, in uh, Israel, in the Palestinian territory, Jordan, Egypt, other African states and statelets with Turkey and Russia facing off for influence? I mean, how, how has this happened where we have the Europeans and the Americans largely sidelined, even though this has been their traditional area of influence? That's a very good question. The Turks finally have realized that the Russians are going to do nothing for them in uh, Syria, and the uh, Russian-engineered attack on a Turkish convoy back in the spring was the final straw to show Ankara that the Russians didn't care enough about Turkey to give them any concessions in Syria. So that's what started this uh, combination of cooperation and confrontation between those two countries, and it's now extended to Libya. I wouldn't predict that it is going to now spread like water across Africa and other places because, frankly, the Russians would be delighted to have a strategic base in Libya and not have to worry about anything else for a while, and the Turks would be very happy to be a winner in Libya and not have to worry about anything else for a while because the Turks traditionally have not been able to be very successful in their foreign policy forays. So. Uh, but but this this actually gives the U.S. a great opportunity. Uh, if Turkey and Russia now are going to be contesting with each other on certain issues, it gives an opportunity for the Americans to try to work with the Turks to use that relationship against the Russians and uh, in doing so perhaps uh, modestly improve Turkish-American relations. Okay. Now, on the opposite side, of, uh, away from conflict, and looking a little bit closer to the domestic Turkish picture. In another recent article, you offered a very grim prognosis about the economy in Turkey, stating that the value of the lira has plummeted to such a new low, despite the Turkish Central Bank's dramatic depletion of hard currency reserves attempting to prop it up. Now, what's causing this economic crisis beyond the global recession, if, if anything? Well, the, uh, the global recession has had a lot to do with it, and the current pandemic impact has had a lot to do with it. But inflation is again rising in Turkey. Unemployment among young people is probably 25 or 30 percent under the age of uh, 25. And uh, the government, bad, the country badly needs structural reform to improve its productive capability. Mr. Erdogan refuses to take those steps because he controls so much of the economy. There's a great deal of corruption, and he can't afford politically to allow somebody else to straighten out his economy. So that's where my comment about Band-Aids comes in. He keeps 
twiddling with interest rates. He keeps uh, managing uh, to get a little extra money from Qatar. He gets a little extra money from here and there. But that's why the economy is in such difficulty, and it's likely to get worse. The Turks have total of over $300 billion in dollar-denominated debt, which the government is either obligated to guarantee or to uh, pay for services, along with a huge debt owed by Turkish business people. I think $80 billion have to be refinanced this year, so they're in trouble. Now, one of the uh, news stories that we started off the top of the broadcast was about Turkey's inclusion into the Euroclear system, one of two uh, security clearinghouses in the Eurozone. Will Europe or any other country offer Turkey a lifeline or a bailout to help with their problems? I doubt it. They they uh, strategically are really at odds with Turkey, and much of that is Turkey's uh, fault because of its uh, aggressive um, attitude towards the European Union. And so I think that they will try not to let Turkey fail. So if it comes to that, I'm sure they'll put up some money to help Turkey keep going. But they're not about to be the guardian angel for the Turkish economy. Now, what kind of opposition is, is Erdogan facing domestically in the wake of this economic crisis? Is he starting to feel pressure from within his own party or an increased vocal opposition that may be unified with their ability to cause him some trouble at the ballot box? And, and that's, of course, with the footnote not uh, taking into, into account any electoral manipulation. Yes. I think you have to start in all the domestic uh, discussion with the fact that Mr. Erdogan is a supremely um, effective politician, uh, tactically and strategically inside Turkey, and he has now dominated the Turkish political landscape for two decades with a pretty good chance of having it last for at least three more years and perhaps even longer. So there is a lot of opposition. There are a lot of fragmented mosaic groups, but none of them is uh, uh, organized uh, in the way that his own party is. He has two people from his own party who have split. It's uh, clear they are a threat, but how much is not clear. The opposition has elected a mayor of Istanbul, the major source of the economy in Turkey and a great source of patronage and uh, funds for political campaigns, but they don't have a national program as such. So I would say it's a wheel and spokes problem. Mr. Erdogan is the is the guy in the at the hub, and the opposition are out on the periphery, and so he plays each of them off against the other. But he does have significant weaknesses and uh, those continue to show up in the economy and in the political uh, scene. Has uh, Erdogan groomed a successor? Does he have someone who's an heir apparent? No, like all uh, authoritarian figures uh, everywhere in the world and throughout all time, uh, these guys never prepare a successor. And so neither has Mr. Erdogan. In fact, he has made it uh, possible over the last four or five years to eliminate anyone who could possibly be a competitor to him within his own party. That's one of the reasons why two uh, former leaders in his party have broken away to try to form their own parties. What about his son-in-law? 
his son-in-law is his son-in-law, and he has no political experience whatsoever, and he is basically a uh, an agent for Mr. Erdogan's policies. So he has no base of popularity and no base for admiration or support in the in the country. So he only wields power because Mr. Erdogan is his father-in-law. Right, and and unlike Erdogan, who has his you know 30-year story, uh, starting off as a being active in football, soccer, uh, then being the mayor of Istanbul, being jailed, going out, his rise to power in the early aughts. There's not many other people who have a narrative like Mr. Erdogan, nor the deep relationships that he's formed over the last 20 to 30 years in politics. Nor is there anyone else like Fethullah Gulen, who was his original political partner. Is there any other, I don't want to call them apolitical figure, but any other figures in Turkey besides Erdogan or members of the opposition who are casting a shadow over his rule? Is there anyone capable of organizing or fomenting opposition to him that may be just enough to push the AKP off the edge? One of his former party members and a founder of the party uh, um, is uh, is named Babajan. In Turkey, they call him Bebejan, which means baby face because he looks a lot younger than he is. But he is running on a campaign of liberal democracy, restoring freedoms, fixing the economy, uh, and he is um, smart enough to run a country, and he has a lot of financial experience. So he could become a, um, a, a source for real opposition and replacement of Mr. Erdogan. But with the elections now three years away, it's far too early to imagine uh, what his track uh, of success might be. Now, it's not just um, his problems that he has with Russia or his domestic problems, but for the first time, Greece, Cyprus, and Armenia have now banded together in an international arena by blocking Turkey from leading the UN General Assembly. I don't know if you heard about this story or not, but there's um, a greater regional bloc now starting to face off against Turkish enmity. How is Turkey dealing with its Greek uh, Armenian and Cypriot relations, three countries which have historical animosity towards uh, Ankara. Well, this is very interesting because, uh, of course, Mr. Erdogan's uh, Im- imperial ambitions include uh, commanding a great deal of the resources in the Eastern Mediterranean. Uh, that, Im- and of course, includes uh, Greece and Cypriot, and uh, Turkey has never come to uh, final grips with Armenia over the Armenian genocide in 1915 and those years following. So everything Mr. Erdogan does attracts opposition and usually multiple opposition. And that's true for the Eastern Med and in other areas too. Um, if you don't mind, I would like to say just a word about what I think the U.S. ought to be doing about sure, this. Sure, sure. Uh, um, U.S. and Europe right now are the passive players with Libya, the Eastern Med, Turkey's ambitions, and they really can't afford to be. So if I were picking American policy, I would take Turkey's position to support the Libyan government in Tripoli, and I would work with Turkey on that question. I would make it clear to Turkey on the question of control of economic resources and its uh, aggressive political campaigns 
in uh, the Middle East as uh, as the one in which we oppose them. So Turkey talks about how it wants to be independent of any uh, decision process that the U.S. makes. And I think we ought to turn that into an asset and make ourselves an independent actor with respect to Turkey. So I would convene uh, NATO, the EU, or a coalition, if that had to be uh, the case, and say that there has to be a negotiated settlement in Libya, the first point. Second point, no permanent Russian presence in Libya, full stop. And third point, the Eastern Med and control of economic resources have to be negotiated fairly. And I would make the U.S. and Europe the conveners and get back at the table and uh, and, and uh, assert some influence on this process instead of just standing by and watching right now. We, we are not doing anything more right now than doing what we did in Afghanistan, which is to say that all the parties should agree. Well, we, it didn't work too well in Afghanistan, and if we don't exert some influence in Libya, it may turn out to be the same sort of mess we have seen in Afghanistan. And the uh, European foreign policy establishment agrees with you. Joseph Borrell, the EU's Minister for Foreign Affairs, was just quoted as saying in a meeting with the Greek and Cypriot foreign ministers, he said, we are in close contact with our colleagues in order to monitor the state of drilling and call on Turkey to stop drilling in areas where there is an economic exclusive economic zone where territorial waters of Cyprus and Greece talking about the recent uh, you know, mad, mad rush for eastern Mediterranean natural gas. More than that, right. Cyprus's president, Nikos Anastasiades, that's me and my Greek pronunciation, we could do Hebrew, but I have to work on that, uh, <laughs> said that if Tur- Turkey did not end its aggression in the eastern Mediterranean, it should no longer be an EU candidate. So Turkey has what to lose, not just what to gain with this uh, efforts. Any final thoughts on not just U.S. policy, but what's going to happen in the next few weeks with all these different Turkish incursions? You know, it's too, we're too close to the platform to see what might happen, to be honest with you. So I uh, wouldn't try to guess and certainly wouldn't try to predict. But longer term, Turkey under Mr. Erdogan is going to continue to have politically aggressive steps in the region uh, surrounding it and even military steps. It has bases now in Somalia on the Indian Ocean, a base in Sudan on the Red Sea, a base in Qatar on the Persian Gulf, and now uh, claims for the Eastern Med. So Turkey is building a military presence on every important waterway in the Middle East, and it is the only country with that presence even in a minor way today. So expect more of this, but keep in mind that Turkey has often been unsuccessful in actually carrying this out, and if the Turks go too far in Libya, there'll be a very sharp reaction, and it will actually enhance a Russian presence, something we Americans certainly do not support or want. Ambassador Robert Pearson, thank you for joining us this morning, and we hope to have you back soon. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. After these messages, the Middle East Forum's staff roundtable. The Middle East Forum has been promoting American interests in the Middle East for the past 25 years. The Forum provides context, insights, and policy recommendations through its premier and most widely read Middle East journal, Middle East Quarterly. Publishing debates, public lectures, staff writings, arguments, and coverage of every Middle Eastern country that America operates in. From Morocco to Iran, from Turkey to Djibouti, the Middle East Quarterly is there for you. Read more at www.mequarterly.org. Take a look under your bed. 
find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that, overall, you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't seen your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed. And they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs. And it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover keytar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff. Create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at Goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Middle East Forum Radio here on WWDB 860 AM. I'm now joined by the Middle East Forum's staff and all of our project directors to discuss the news of the week and also what we have coming up in the week ahead. We're joined by Winfield Myers, director of Campus Watch, Sam Westrop, director of Islamist Watch, Gary Gamble, the editor of Middle East Forum Online, Cliff Smith, the director of the Washington Project, Ben Baird, the director of the Counter-Islamist Grid, and any other staff who may have joined us this morning that I didn't cover, and I'm sure they'll remind me on our inner staff channel. The first topic I'd like to discuss this morning is something that just we spoke about the first half of the hour, and also something that came across my line on the MEF Washington Wire. Anyone who uh, is not signed up for the Middle East Forum's Washington Insider, written by Mike and Levinson every evening, Micah being our D.C. resident fellow, I highly recommend that you sign up for it. We'll send out a link on the website as soon as this broadcast is over with a reminder with how to get that information. It really has every Middle East news story that relates to Americans and promoting American interests, and especially to those who may not be picking it up in the general media, with a little bit of analysis every day. First, let's start off with these new sanctions. Uh, Gary Gamble, are you with us? Yeah. Okay, Gary. We've had some stories which we published, including in the wire last night, about a new round of Iran sanctions uh, being brought forth, or at least suggested in the House of Representatives, as we come to the October 2020 deadline and expiration of the United Nations Security Council's global ban on the import and supply of conventional weapons to Iran. This doesn't cover their missile program. That expiration is in 2023. What can you tell us about what Iran is saying about the uh, expiration of this ban? They're calling on uh, China and Russia to uh, uh, veto any new American action at the UNSC, and then the American response if there is a um, a, uh, a little bit of a, of a block there to get global consensus. Right. Well, what's happening is that the the UN arms embargo on Iran is set to expire in October. That was a provision of the Iran nuclear deal uh, from several years ago. And the United States is threatening, is pressing the UN Security Council to renew the arms embargo. And the threat is that if the UN Security Council doesn't renew the arms embargo, the United States as a signatory uh, to the Iran nuclear deal or the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, JCPOA, uh, 
will trigger the snapback provision, which is a mechanism uh, that the Obama administration, it's generally credited the one good thing the Obama administration did in the Iran nuclear deal is this provision that if Iran is if, is not complying with the terms of the agreement, that any one of the opposing parties, including the United States, can trigger the resumption of full UN sanctions that existed before the Iran nuclear deal. And what's happening is Russia and China are saying, no way we're going to veto any UN Security Council resolution renewing the arms embargo. And what's unclear is whether their opposition to snapback uh, matters or, or whether it's going to prevent a snapback of the full range of sanctions. Of course, the Trump administration withdrew from the Iran nuclear deal. And as I understand it, there's some question over whether that means the United States uh, as a party to the agreement can still trigger the snapback mechanism. The Trump administration is saying yes. The State Department issued an opinion saying yes. Uh, but we have, you know, we don't have a lot of friends in the Security Council right now. So it, it's it's unclear to me how that's going to be resolved. Cliff, what is Congress saying about this conundrum? Is the U.S. still party to the JCPOA? If so, are snapback sanctions something that we can uh, invoke? If not, is there support, bipartisan support, or potentially a minority of Democrats in the House with Republican support to try to reintroduce this new sanctions bill? Uh, yeah, there is overwhelming support in Congress um, for extending the arms embargo in Iran. There was actually... Um, um, even a um, a letter that was backed by APAC that was uh, signed by people you wouldn't even expect, such as Ilan Omar, saying that you know sanctions, arms embargo should continue. Um, so there's wide um, bipartisan support in Congress um, for extending the sanctions. Um, again, there is it's it's fairly clear, um, certainly from a U.S. standpoint, that that you know, even withdrawing from the agreement um, should still be able to trigger snapback. Um, the Obama administration um, heavily marketed this when it was trying to sell the, the Iran deal in the first place. So certainly by any reasonable measure, uh, this should continue um, and it should, uh, the U.S. should be able to um, snap back sanctions. Um, obviously politics comes into it and some very murky language. There was, all kinds of ambiguities in the Iran deal, and 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 it frequently happens that any ambiguity in a treaty or international agreement of any sort at all um, leads other people to take advantage of it the best they can. And as Gary mentioned, um, the Chinese and the Russians are really trying hard to um, use this to their advantage. Uh, I think, however, um, the U.S. probably holds more cards than it really realizes in this situation. Um, because at the end of the day, while certainly it is true that China and Russia um, would prefer to give arms to Iran, both for economic reasons and, frankly, for um, reasons of turning Iran into a client state that gives the U.S. problems, since they have problems with the U.S., um, they also um, they're, they're not totally irrational actors. And they have, face a lot of other problems if they do so. Um, uh, in addition to the problems with the U.S., 
um, the rest of the Arab world um, does not want um, these arms going to uh, uh, Iran. Obviously, Saudi Arabia, the rest of the Gulf Arabs, Egypt, so on and so forth. All of these people are horrified by that idea because um, people in Lebanon, people in Egypt, people in Iraq, people in Saudi Arabia, and they're going to be the, the targets of a lot of these weapons uh, at some point, and they know it. So, um, and those are all, frankly, places China and Russia want to sell to. And uh, I think the U.S. should spend a lot of time um, and a lot of energy making sure um, other opponents of Iran, other people that are threatened by their conventional arms or um, any kind of um, increased power in the region they get, should be telling Russia and China, hey, look, you guys better back off on this because we're a lot bigger of a market than Iran and we're not causing you nearly as many problems as Iran. You might not like the U.S., you might not like... Um, you know, we might want to use Iran against them, but you can't do it and uh, you can't basically hurt us and then try to take advantage of our markets at the same time. Right. And if we talk about the constituent groups which have been in the U.S., at least domestically, backing an end to Iran sanctions or at least asking for a suspension of sanctions, I want to point the two separate initiatives that took place in March, right with the onset of COVID-19, which have now been sort of rolled into this effort to not necessarily talk about uh, invoking a, a, a departure or veto of the weapons ban, but just sanctions in general. And I want to ask your opinions on if these constituencies have the same opinion as it relates to other Iran sanctions, taking into account what Cliff just said about how even Ilhan Omar signed on to an APAC-backed letter demanding a reimposition of the weapons ban. So the first initiative that we had was in March by uh, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and Ilhan Omar in the House, all backing what they called a temporary suspension of the maximum pressure campaign of the Trump administration by citing a October 2019 Human Rights Watch report where they said, before the outbreak of COVID-19, the United States maximum pressure campaign had drastically constrained the ability of Iranian entities to finance humanitarian imports, including vital medicines and medical equipment, uh, thereby saying that U.S. sanctions were directly responsible for contributing to the deterioration of Iran's public health sector, and by removing the sanctions, Iran's you know, citizenry would be in a better place. But it goes a little bit beyond that when we start talking about academics asking for something similar. In an open letter published by the Institute for Peace and Diplomacy, who brands themselves as a progressive foreign policy think tank, this is uh, the work of Matt Dussin and his group, they called for, I quote, the Iranian uh, country uh, being on paper, having some of the strongest uh, uh, sanctions being focused against them, while on paper, the U.S. administration has provided humanitarian exemptions in its sanctions regime. Reports from Iranian civil society, international aid organizations, and human rights groups show a different reality on the ground. As U.S. sanctions, including banking restrictions, have severely impacted Iranians' access to medical equipment and essential medicine. So I want to turn to Winfield Meyer, Ben Baird, and Sam Westrop for a second. Um, when there have been many articles that Campus Watch has published about academics calling especially Middle East studies professors, calling for a suspension or uh, uh, easement on sanctions uh, by the United States and other international actors against Iran. What, what is their academic argument or their justification for scaling this back? I mean, here we have over 1,200 professors signing on to this. 
saying that there should be you know a, a better exemption for banking well the same banks that they use to purchase you know masks or ventilators is the same that they use to finance weapons deals so what's what's their their rationale i think their rationale is principally uh pretty simple it's pro-iran and anti-american and anything <laughs> that will help the regime in iran uh, survive what they would see as the predations of the, um, the evil West, in particular, of course, the United States. They're going to be uh, for, and in this case, they ignore, for example, the, uh, the fact that Iran has denied, denied any uh, American aid, turned down American aid uh, for the COVID-19 crisis. They've also uh, expelled Doctors Without Borders, um, and the petition that you mentioned uh, was introduced in March, uh, precisely at the same time that uh, uh, the, the apologists for Iran were arguing that the um, regime uh, needed a break. Uh, and it's been, it's been signed by a lot of very prominent uh, professors. Um, no huge shocks in any of this, but their general argument is that, um, uh, and it's, it's a pretty reliable argument over time from, from them, that Iran is uh, the victim uh, of the West and that these uh, sanctions uh, uh, should be lifted for humanitarian reasons, ignoring, as you say, that the same dollars that could be used for medical aid can also be used for uh, nuclear weapons. Now, uh, Ben, the main mover and shaker behind both the think tank's letter from academics and also the congressional letter has been the uh, National Iranian American Council, or NIAC. And uh, we've spoken you know, ad nauseum about its founder, Trita Parsi, who's now moved on to actually a Soros and Coach-funded program. But um, what I'd like to know is, is, is how is NIAC uh, responding to this new call for sanctions, if you have any commentary on that, or Sam can chime in too, and, and Cliff, because all of you deal with this specific organization. But more than that, you know, who is backing this organization? Is it just the Iranian diaspora community in the United States? Is it a umbrella and, and a coalition of different so-called progressive groups? Or is it being seen as, as a sort of a, as a tool to just strike back at the uh, Trump administration's foreign policy and as a place to coalesce around support for the Iran deal? Oh, uh, sure. So NIAC um, definitely has support from the, well, from segments of the Iranian diaspora in the U.S., uh, but it also, more and more uh, recently, we're seeing they get support from U.S. Islamist organizations uh, have sort of banded together with NIAC to support many of the same causes. Uh, most of that goes back to uh, what Winfield was referencing which just comes from many shared, uh, sort of shared uh, beliefs and opposition to the U.S. Um, so, you know, NIAC receives backing not just from Iranians, but from American Muslims, from, uh, from Islamists as well. Uh, now, as far as the arms embargo, NIAC uh, is opposed to implementing any snapback. Uh, wants to see uh, other countries sort of take over. They feel that the U.S. sort of backed out of the uh, JCPOA and so no longer should have any say in the deal. 
Um, but NIAC has really opposed any sort of sanctions at any time against the U.S. Uh, they even opposed sanctions against the IRGC last year that were imposed. Uh, so I don't think this is anything new from them. They've opposed any sanctions against Iran, and they will continue to do so. So I, I want to kind of open up the conversation right now. Iran's been a pain in the American uh, foreign policy sphere for the past 41 years. Um, how do we square the circle of trying to find a way to, if not be less adversarial, uh, figuring out a way, if it's even at all possible, beyond isolation of the Ayatollahs, of trying to encourage and foment either regime change there or a change in policy to make it more amenable to American uh, uh, foreign policy goals. Now, I, I would like to note that last week there was an American hostage which was released from Iranian prison. He made his way back to the United States after actually having been given what they called a humanitarian release as a former U.S. Uh, armed, armed services member who was caught up in the wrong place at the wrong time. So there seems to be at least a bit of a thaw in the last week between the U.S. and Iran. And with these releases, there's always something that happens on the American side, whether you want to call it a prisoner swap, whether you want to call it a humanitarian gesture. It doesn't really matter. But I'd like to first ask Gary, uh, let's look at both the Democrats' position on Iran and the Republican position on Iran. And I think that even within those parties, there's different positions. But look at it holistically. Joe Biden gets elected in November. What does he do with Iran? Okay, maybe Gary is not with us. Uh, Cliff, what's your take? Sorry, what I was Biden? Muted. Yeah. Gary? I was just going to say, as... as as Cliff said, there, nominally at least, there's quite a bit of consensus between Democrats and Republicans, uh, certainly on the arms embargo. Um, so, uh, but but I, I I do think Cliff, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I do think the Biden administration will be much more favorably dis disposed to trying to revive the JCPOA. Um, perhaps have the United States re-engage and, and reassume its commitments uh, to that agreement. That, that's sort of been, uh, it's, it's sort of been an article of faith among Democrats that the JCPOA was great and that the Trump administration's withdrawal from it was essentially illegitimate. Yeah. Okay. I and, think and that Cliff, I would just say that the, the, the thing – Biden will kind of be in a in a tight spot, my guess is, because his base will certainly want him to reenter the JCPOA or something that looks like it. Um, and I think that his instincts will be go softer on Iran, certainly, than Trump has. Um, that has been, I would probably say, the glowing part of Trump's foreign policy is his policy toward Iran. However, it's not quite that easy because – as ridiculous as it seems from our point of view, there were enough people in Iran that, you know, opposed making any deal with the great Satan. And now that the great Satan has, you know, betrayed them by pulling out of the deal, you know, getting back in it in any sort of meaningful way might not be as easy as it would seem to us, even if it benefits them. Beyond that, Iran will have been put in such a hammerlock um, by all these sanctions, even be far beyond what it was before. It will be very, it will be difficult for him to not to, 
totally let them out of that box without getting something for it. And that might be more difficult than it seems. My guess would be um, he will try to get something. Maybe it'll only be symbolic. Maybe it'll be more meaningful. And try to get into something, you know, the, the GSPOA or something resembling it again. But I think there's actually perhaps more uncertainty than people realize going forward. Um, it, it's very hard to say. There's a lot of moving parts. But I do think that um, just assuming that Biden's base wants something is not necessarily going to make it quite as easy as it seems to just kind of get back to where we started. Things have changed too much since then. And Cliff, you bring up a really good point. You know, it's not just about what has evolved in the American political scene, but Iran has a whole new generation of political leaders that are coming up. A new parliament's been elected, a new parliamentary speaker has been put in place. Ali Arajani, the former negotiator, has been moved out of the way. Um, we even have new heads of the uh, Internet Islamic Republic, Republican Guard Corps and also the um, excuse me, Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps and uh, many of the other midfield leaders that you know five years ago, six years ago were effective in implementing and negotiating this agreement, but now they're all gone. You know, I think democratic foreign policy, or at least the progressive wing of the Democratic Party, with some 30 members of Congress saying suspend sanctions, that wasn't the case that was under the uh, JCPOA. We had maybe 12 to 15 who were saying no sanctions whatsoever. The rest of the Democratic rank and file was saying, okay, let's do this through a negotiation. We want Iran to open up. But if anything, I mean, the Iranians have hardened their position, their likelihood to even renegotiate the JCPOA if a President Biden wants to reopen negotiation, re-enter the U.S. into that deal. I think that shit may have sailed. I mean, uh, uh, and this is more of a question for Ben or Sam, has the polarization of American politics affected our ability to have effective Middle East policymaking? Uh, Islamists have more power and influence over electoral politics, um, their alliances with those on the left, and even on the right to a certain extent, gives them more sway. And it seems like the U.S. is turning more isolationist and withdrawing from the region rather than doubling down its commitment. So in terms of a wider question, if I can get a minute from each of you before we go off air, starting with Winfield, how is the polarization of American politics affecting, in your case, when Middle East studies professors' influence over our policymaking and their positions. I think, in as much as their voices tend to be shrill and extreme, it uh, amplifies those voices because the uh, media is uh, ready for them. They seem less quixotic, less odd, less out of left field than they would in a more normal political situation. And Ben. Have we seen a difference from your reporters and what positions are of those who are in their local communities versus, you know, what they may have been saying a year ago or two years ago? Uh, absolutely. Really what we're seeing, you know, uh, one of my Islamism and politics writers uh, discovered a newsletter from the National Iranian American uh, Council. And this letter really talked about all of, all of the accomplishments uh, that NIAC has made over the last year, and it's been beyond just sanctions. Uh, it's been undermining the president's ability to wage war, taking away our diplomatic options, uh, trying to get a return to the JCPOA. Uh, you know, at every point of our tensions with Iran, 
uh, NIAC and other pro-Iran groups have been there to uh, undermine U.S. policy. That undermining has, I think, weakened the country. Uh, Cliff, is there any camaraderie on bipartisan policy initiatives regarding Middle Eastern policymaking? I mean, APAC for decades saw themselves as being the bipartisan pro-Israel organization. Now they're being pulled in both directions by Democrats on the left and Republicans on the right. They've had a J Street. ZOA is now being called for being expelled from the uh, you know community organization that represents American Jewish interests because of their opinions regarding a domestic issue. But that's you know symptomatic or or, or an allegory to what's going on with other uh, sectoral politics. What's your take? Oh, I mean, the issue has clearly become more partisan, um, far more partisan. Um, I think that the Obama administration, with its policies on settlements, on UN resolutions concerning Israel, on Iran, did a great deal to accelerate this trend. Um, I think that was, um, if not, it, it, also this way, if it wasn't by design, it, it, uh, it couldn't have been done much better if it had been. Um, that said, it, there were these fissures anyway. Um, the sort of intersectionality left, um, as you might want to say it, the woke left, they are always looking for victims. And I mean, Israel was essentially created to remove Jewish victimhood um, by you know any means that they had um, at their you know reasonable disposal. And so there was always going to be a weird tension with the direction that the the hard modern left was going. And while there is still um, support for Israel in the broadest possible sense in most of the Democratic Party. It's becoming much more controversial. Those tensions have been exacerbated, and not just on the Israel issue and the Iran issue, but it almost seems on Correct. every issue that there's disagreement in between the two parties. That's it for this week on Middle East Forum Radio. I want to thank Cliff Smith, Gary Gamble, Ben Baird, and Winfield Myers for joining us with our Project Directors Roundtable, a new segment that we've been offering, and for everyone else listening, Marilyn Stern and our engineer and everyone else in the office. Thank you very much, everyone, and we'll talk to you next week. 